Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Podcast 1201. You are fortunate enough to have me as your host, Bradley Alsop, um, today. I hope you're all safe and warm, uh, snowing in many parts of the country. A little bit of snow uh, in Lincoln yesterday, but we seem to have avoided it so far today. Uh, you're also joined today by Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. Again, no snow out my window. Thanks, Callum. And we're also joined by Ollie today as well. Hello, everyone. I hope, hope you're all warm and safe. Um, we will be joined by uh, Mr. Callum Watt in a little bit, um, but we're going to tackle... Uh, well, we've got, we've got three topics today we're going to tackle. So, uh, first of all, we're going to go on um, the the slow-burning uh, disaster that is Brexit. Um, or, or maybe it's not a disaster. We'll, we'll see. We'll find out um, later on in the, in the pod. We're, we're also obviously going to talk about COVID um, and some of the concerning uh, new variants that are circulating in the UK and, and, and in general um, how, how the NHS is coping with COVID. Uh, and finally, we're going to come a little bit closer to home and, and talk about um, the latest shenanigans of our of our um, infamous MP, Carl McCartney, uh, and also talk a little bit about um, the, the local impact that COVID and Brexit are having in Lincoln um, and, and whether our MP is, is providing enough support for local people or not. So first of all, we're going to go on to, to Brexit, Ollie. So we, we have left the European Union um, and, and the transition period. Uh, we, we have full-on Brexit now, um, and, we, and we have for, for almost a month now. Uh, how are we doing, Ollie? Uh, are things going well? Are, are we a, a global Britain yet? Oh, yeah, we're well on our way to uh, to taking back our, our sovereignty, I would say. Um, <laughs> so it's not like... Um, like Y2K, where like it ticks over on the on the first of January to um, to a new year, and everything sort of implodes and all the systems fail. Um, it's looking like it's going to be, you know, years of of bureaucratic issues and and increased tariffs um, to the EU, um, rather than like a, a a very kind of colossal saga all at once. But um, what what's happened is. Um, UK companies have been told by the the Department of International Trade, which is a government body, um, that it's it's it makes sense for their business to to set up their firms abroad because the costs of, um, well they they basically wouldn't be able to trade from their their UK bodies, um, so it's best to have um, new firms in other countries, um, which would which would mean you know like. Um, cutting back their UK business and uh, laying off their employees and hiring people in in European countries like like the Netherlands, I think was one, which was um, cited. So um, this is what yeah this is what it means to be a global Britain. This is what taking back control looks like. This is UK companies being like being told that um, they can't effectively trade with the the EU anymore they have to have European companies um, and I think this has a lot of wider implications really I mean it was a big argument um, from from leave voters and people that supported brexit that you know would be fine without um, with, without some EU goods being imported here you know we could grow our own or we can manufacture our own it's not the, just the case that um, it's a problem with importing stuff. It's it's about um, UK companies which which previously traded with the EU 
and did so freely and without increased tariffs and taxes um, and are now being told that they can no longer do that, which is having, you know, like really severe financial effects on them and, you know, potentially convincing them to lay off their UK employees, which is just going to um, increase the, the, like, the widening jobs crisis at the moment. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's almost insane. I don't know. I haven't heard any comment from, uh, you know, people like Nigel Farage or, or any other vocal supporters of Brexit about these implications. They've, they've been very quiet. Um, but I think this is just the first of what are going to be some some really big effects on, on the UK economy and more importantly on UK people. Yeah, uh, Nigel Farage has been suspiciously quiet, hasn't he, over, over the last few weeks? Um, not, I, I'm by no means complaining about it, the lack of his face on my timeline, but uh, he has been suspiciously quiet now he's got, you know, what he spent a good chunk of his political career and um, striving for. Um, Mr. Rupert, what, what are your thoughts? Was, was this, is this disruption just a, a small teething problem at, at the start of the Brexit transition? Um, or, or, or is this always, and, and also, you know, was this always an inevitable outcome of any sort of Brexit? Um, or, or is it, you know, a, a longer lasting impact of a very specific form of Brexit that we've decided to go for? What are your thoughts, Callum? It's, it's very much the symptoms of the hard Brexit that we've gone for, but it's also the symptoms of hollowing out our economy for years ensuring that industry is is very much teetering on the edge even our services sector that we're always told to be proud of we we know that a lot of services have gone under during the pandemic and they're very much financially vulnerable because the conditions are so stale in in the economy in the UK so when they're given this choice between having more difficulty imposed on their on their trade on their business as opposed to being able to jump back into the free market or the the, the open borders of, of the Schengen area and the European Union. For them, it's, it's a no-brainer. But also we have to remember that a lot of industry in this country that's left, what, what very little remains, is actually owned by European companies that benefited greatly from the European Union. So now they have to consider their position. For example, our only uh, our only railway building um, industry in Derby, so the only trains that we build for passengers in Derby, that has been impacted heavily by Brexit. Now we're lucky that it has got some deals to tide it over. It's building monorails for, for Egypt and it's doing all sorts of things for the London Underground. But they've cut back jobs significantly pre-Brexit because it was so difficult to get stuff over here. So when you look at the the Schengen area, when you look at the attraction that is the European Union, also with the high standards and protections for employees as well, because we do have a couple of ethical companies, despite our, our, our tendency to bash companies, there are some great companies out there that look after their employees. And with the, with the questionable imposition of red tape, as well as the slashing of workers' rights, this is a double whammy for a lot of businesses. This is going to cause a lot of trouble. And I think that the, the Department for International Trade to invite companies to leave is just a sign of, of exactly the predicament we're in. Because if we're going to destroy industry again, you've got to remember Thatcher did it. If we're going to destroy businesses again, what are we going to have left? 
what 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 remains after that? Because the agricultural sector is very much limited. Our industry is limited. Our services sector relies on the single market heavily. So that puts us in a very difficult place indeed. And I do fear for the people, not at the top of the companies, who can quite easily get up and leave. They can move over to the continent. It's the people on minimum wage. It's the people in the supply chain. It's the people that clean the offices for these big companies. It's the people that working day in, day out, just about scrape enough money together. And now they're potentially being faced with being made redundant because of Brexit. And that's despite the fact that we've had Brexit sold to us as this thing that's going to save us. But actually, if we were going to do Brexit right and do it in the spirit of this global Britain, we would have had a softer Brexit and a far closer relationship to our biggest customer. They're our biggest customer, so why would we turn our back on them? It, it, it's just ridiculous. And putting up more red tape when we're saying we're going to take down red tape is just a, is just a complete, well, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the whole thing, really. Yeah, and I think some some of the things coming out over the last few days around um, the the review the review of workers' rights um, post Brexit by the UK government um, are concerning. Of course, the the, the government is uh, a business secretary has promised that they they are by no means intending to whittle down any any of the rights and standards we we previously enjoyed as part of the membership in in terms of work you know commitments to workers' rights. Um, but it, I mean, it, I don't think anyone really believes that if we're if we're having a review, um, I don't think anyone really believes if we're having a review of workers' rights um, that we're suddenly going to end up with better workers' rights in in the UK post Brexit, are we? That that's only going to be code for potentially reducing cert, certain rights or, or certain protections in certain areas. Um, Ollie, what what are your thoughts? Uh, are workers in for for uh, uh, less rights and less protections in a in a post Brexit world? Well, it's certainly very scary, the, some of the talk about this. And um, I think some, um, you know, workers' rights um, unions and organisations have been kind of very vocal about this, about um, how much of a slippery slope it is. Um, but also by um, the government have, have previously said on this that, um, you know, they care very much about workers' rights and they're not going to change. But... Um, I I do fear for the worst because it does look very bleak and there is effectively nothing to stop them um, at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just such a again with the the Brexit the Brexit um, implications, which is what we're seeing um, the the real impact of leaving the the single market and the and the customs union becoming much more clear. Um, you know. The government promised that in price prices wouldn't increase on on these goods, and they promised that you know there'd be ample support for UK businesses and workers. But it's just it's just evaporated almost. It's like it's like it never happened really. It's like they say something and uh, and do another thing, and then and then no one really says anything about it. It's certainly very scary. Yes, um, and I suppose my my interest is um, where's the Labour Party's position on this? So uh, Ed Miliband um, has has come out um, in in recent days and, and criticised the government for uh, particularly at this moment uh, with with everything that's going on, 
um, to to be conducting a review into into workers' rights um, that, as we said, is unlikely to produce stronger rights and or better protections for workers. So Ed Miliband has come out um, and and been fairly critical um, of, of the government uh, talking about reviewing workers' rights at this time. Um, uh, Mr. Roper, we, we have just been drawing Mr. Watt. Um, if either of you want to come in, um, I'll, I'll go to Callum Roper first. Um, Where's the Labour Party on this? Um, has the Labour Party been, been uh, voicing any dissent in recent days? I, I think the Labour Party, it's been more mumbles and grumbles than a than an outright opposition to what is the effectively the, the taking apart of workers' rights, the imposition of bureaucracy and barriers to trade, which means that businesses are struggling. And it's not just big businesses, it's, it's it's very much small businesses that are going to feel the, the biggest impact of this. I mean, you've only got to look at the seafood industry. It's a very sensitive um, product that they're selling because it goes out of date so quickly. So it relies on being shipped, being caught in the, in the UK, put on a ice lorry as quickly as possible, and then through the borders at the Channel Tunnel or at the ferry crossing as quickly as possible. But now with the new with the new tariffs and the new red tape, what we find is that these businesses are being impacted heavily. They're losing hundreds of thousands of pounds a week. And that's unsustainable for any business. So despite the fact that we're talking about um, Brexit being this global Britain, it's very much at the moment feeling like it's Britain turning in on itself. We've, We've put up our barricades. We're keeping in, we're trying to keep in as much wealth and and, and whatever we want as possible. But sovereignty wasn't being given away. Wealth wasn't being given away. Wealth was being created in the European Union. And workers' rights, albeit we could, I mean, everyone in this call would probably argue that we needed better protections for trade unions and people in them and people working and better conditions at work. But there was a standard. There was a minimum standard that we had to meet. Now, a review, I very much doubt that any review is going to bring in any better workers' rights. It's going to probably undercut the trade unions even more. It's going to undercut the rights and safety of people in the workplace. It's going to make what is very much an unstable economy as it is, built on sand, built on quicksand after that. So I think it's it's a it's going to be effectively disastrous. And the Labour Party needs to be standing up against this firmly saying, no, we will not take this. And if you do do this, we will oppose you every step of the way. I don't think some of our tactics in in previous ways of opposing the government over the last year or so in terms of abstentions work. Neither do I think just voting with them because we're going to lose works either. I think people want to see the Labour Party stand up for what's right, stand up for people's rights. Because as I said before, it, it could have been possible with a different government and a different ideology driving it to have a Brexit that may have made Britain even more progressive than the European Union, because it certainly has got its faults. But with this government, with this ideology, with this direction, it's disastrous. Yeah, and I think for me, this was always one of the strongest arguments against Brexit in in its current formation, you know, to set aside the issue of, of the, the, the ultimate you know aim of, of the EU and whether its neoliberal aspects are, are too much to make it worth investing time and energy in, and whether we should eventually leave the EU. I think probably one of the most practical arguments against against Brexit 
um, back, back in the referendum days was that look at the context in which Brexit is going to happen. It's going to happen under a right wing Tory government. Um, and my, my fear was always that any, any, because, you know, you did sort of have the Lexit arguments of, you know, we leave the EU, we, we've got this almost a new door and this chance to, to, to rework all these things. But what that's going to take the form of and under a right wing government in charge um, is that it, it, we're basically in a very reactive fight now, aren't we, as the left? We're, we're going to have to be fighting to maintain the workers' rights that we currently have, whereas really the conversation should be about expanding them. It should be about, um, you know, a, a, a much higher bar set for, for a living wage and, and that being legislated in, into law. It should be about uh, more more democracy and workers' control in the workplace. You know, so we it the, we the real debate that we need to be having in in the scale of the problems we face is about a, a, a quite a radical expansion of workers' rights and control in the economy. But what we're going to be having for the next few years, at least, it seems, is is a very reactive fight to maintain the the, the bare minimum that we have at the moment. I think. Uh, Mr. Watt, you've ju- you've just joined us. Um, we're we're at the back end of a conversation about Brexit. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on on Brexit and the developments we've seen in recent days with delays at the border and and government reviews of workers' rights and all the rest of it. Well, certainly none of it's particularly surprising, is it? Uh, can you hear me, by the way? Yep, perfectly, crystal clear. All right, brilliant. Um, yes, no, it's it's certainly not surprising, and uh, I entirely agree that the uh, this is, in a way, an opportunity um, to argue that workers' rights should be increased because at the end of the day, I suppose that's probably what a lot of people voted for. Um, I, I feel like um, our stance so far on Brexit has been quite poor, um, and that's not just under Keir Starmer's leadership. It goes back to uh, Jeremy Corbyn as well, um, albeit, of course, Keir Starmer's partly responsible for that uh, stance as well, um, which is um, basically uh, to follow where the wind blows instead of going, well, this is people voted for Brexit, but this isn't the Brexit that people voted for, which I think is probably a sentiment echoed by a large part of the population. So taking that stance and arguing that that Brexit should be used to improve workers' rights rather than turning us into a Singapore off the uh, coast of Europe, which is what the uh, extreme, not even le- neoliberals, I'm not sure, I think we probably need a new name for them, actually, the new extreme, almost anarcho-capitalist uh, faction that's running the government at the moment, um, is going for. I think if you're, if you're saying we've had Brexit and we're going to use it as an opportunity to improve rights, I think that's actually an entirely consistent stance, which would actually really help the Labour Party. Um, I'm not confident we're going to go down that direction yet, but I'm certainly going to be arguing for it. Great. Thanks, Carl. Um, so we're, we're going to move on to our next story, um, which is, uh, to no one's surprise, around COVID um, in the UK in particular. So um, we're sitting almost a year on. Um, in in another lockdown, in a third lockdown in the UK, um, daily deaths um, from yesterday um, were thirteen hundred, um, bringing up. Um, anyway, we're we're pushing at the door of the hundred thousand deaths now in the UK, and by some measures at least, we've actually got the worst worst death rate in the world um, now, by some measures. Um, of course, much of the concern now is around some of the new variants circulating in the UK. 
um, to the point at which Boris Johnson um, has actually now come out and said in a briefing that they think one of these new variants um, could actually even be potentially 30% more deadly um, than, than the original strain of COVID. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, looking into it, some of the evidence, it, it, you know, the, the more tests are needed, um, the, the evidence for, for the effect of the new variants is still quite preliminary. But clearly the government's seeing some fairly solid data if Boris Johnson is, is taken to a... Um, you know, a national press briefing and, and, and saying and saying that he thinks it, it's likely that it's more deadly. Clearly, there is some evidence gathering for that if, if he's making that commitment. Um, so there are there are a number of strains now circulating uh, and new variants. Well, th- there will actually be thousands of variants um, of, of COVID because that, that's what viruses do. They, they mutate because um, they, they replicate extremely quickly. Um, but some of the main ones that are circulating now um, is what's called the, the UK Kent variant, um, which we, we all are very familiar with now, um, which really came to the fore in December. Um, and, and by the government's uh, uh, reckoning is, is why we're, we're in the current lockdown we're in now, um, that spreads up between 50 and 70% faster um, and more effectively um, that, than the previous strain did. Uh, there is also the South Africa variant um, as well. Um, which which similarly um, seems to to spread more effectively um, in, in the same way that the UK Kent variant does, um, and there's also a, a strain from Brazil that's now been circulating in the UK as well. So there, the this, the focus now with COVID is is very much now switching to to the the new variants that are spreading throughout the world. Of course, the the concern is is primarily around are they going to be more deadly? And and Boris Johnson has, has suggested that one of the variants might might be. Um, slightly more deadly uh, but worth bearing in mind he's, the, the figure he's floating around is 30 percent which actually with a, you know with a death rate of, that, that's you know one percent or lower 30 percent is still a, a very small death rate it's still very unlikely to die from it but obviously any increases in in, in the um the death rate um for from a, any variant is is concerning uh, the other thing, of course, people are concerned about is uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine or vaccines a- against new variants and, w- and whether some of them um, will not be able to be beaten by the vaccine. So this, the, re- the research out there currently is suggesting that's not the case and that vaccines are still pretty effective against these new variants. Um, scientists are saying it's very unlikely that any of the variants will be you know, immune completely from a vaccine. I suppose that there might be reduced effectiveness of some of the vaccines, um, but, but the evidence isn't really there yet at the moment. Um, some of the changes in the structure of the virus um, suggest that maybe that might be relevant to the vaccine's effectiveness, but there's not really any hard evidence for significantly reduced effectiveness of, of any of the vaccines yet. Um, but I suppose research on that is ongoing. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're in a concerning place, um, case case levels and, and death levels and hospital admissions. Hospital admissions are starting to go down a little bit, I think. The number of people in hospitals has started to go down a little bit. And case level, uh, number of new cases a day has started to go down a bit in the UK as well. But obviously, the, those things are going down from very, very high levels and the highest levels we've had at any point in the pandemic. Um, and we're still seeing more than a thousand deaths each day. Um, so we're certainly in a, in a bad place. On the other side of things, the vaccine numbers are, the government's actually doing surprisingly well. And I'd be interested to hear people's thoughts on why that might be. But they seem to have bungled so many other parts of the pandemic response. Um, but but we actually seem to be doing pretty well. We're getting the vaccine out. We've got more than five million people vaccinated now, and and we're, we're quite quickly getting through. You know the the most vulnerable people to 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 the virus. So actually, the government seems to have done 
pre- pretty well on the, on the vaccine front, which has surprised me a little bit, I'll admit. Um, but I'll come to Ollie first on your on your thoughts on these new variants and, and the vaccination program as well. Yeah, um, I got a few points I want to make. Um, certainly, very, very um, an interesting place to be. Um, but as you say, Bradley, the more time um, we give this uh, this vaccine a chance to to mutate and um, and to kind of spread um, dangerously, if it's a, a mutation which is um, which does spread more effectively or potentially is more dangerous. Um, yeah, so, so like. Uh, the the vaccine has never been a, a silver bullet. I think it needs to be used as a part of you know effective lockdown policies and and social distancing rules. Um, but I, I don't think this is something that the government has really grasped because they just think that the, the vaccine is just going to almost like save them and and bail them out from their really um, kind of dangerous uh, approach to this pandemic. Um, and the more time, yeah, as, as as you say, the more time we give it to mutate, the the more dangerous it could potentially become. Um, it's almost like how much longer can we wait before it's going to mutate into something which could be a lot more dangerous or is potentially more resistant to the vaccine, which could be really scary and really like almost like a, a double whammy, um, really detrimental to this country, but also the world. Um and then I wanted to talk about the vaccine itself as well and the government's approach, because as you say, um, they are doing quite well at, at vaccinating um, you know, millions of people with the first dose. But I have some concerns about that because just one dose of this, the vaccines, um, I, I would say, aren't really sufficient. Um, and they're not being used in the way that, that manufacturers intended to um, to use them. It's not what was conducted in the in the clinical trials when they were testing the safety and the effectiveness of the of the vaccines. Um, so as far as that goes, I mean, there's always already a, a feeling of almost kind of mistrust, which I think some people feel in the population or skepticism, and I think almost misusing the vaccines in this way, which is against what a lot of doctors have advised, really kind of. Um, undermines the the trust in vaccines as a whole and could make people be much more reluctant to to get them really yeah we it's an interesting point about the the government's um approach to the vaccination program so just to clarify that the government is is um delaying slightly the second dose of the vaccine so the vaccines are designed to be taken in two doses um, and the the government is delaying um, some of the second doses of the vaccine to in order to basically try and push out the first dose first. So that their strategy seems to be to try and cover a wider group of people quicker with the first dose than a, a slightly smaller group with, and have them have two doses quickly. So it says it's, it's front loading that first dose to as many people as possible. Uh, we we did talk about this actually last week on the podcast, and we were. I mean, really, the evidence isn't really there either way. So I suppose, you know, you, you could make the argument if the evidence isn't there either way, then maybe you should just play it safe and, and do the two doses in, in the time frame they're meant to be taken in, I suppose. Um, but, you know, the, the government's theory and their argument is that most of the protection you get from the two doses seems to be front-loaded in the first dose. Um, so therefore, you know, if, if they cover a wider group of people with this front-loading of effectiveness, you know, early on, 
if you compare that to getting a smaller group of people with a slightly higher effectiveness level, then you know the 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 slightly le- less effective but more people might actually save more lives in the long run. If that makes sense, we did cover this last week. Um, I suppose that's the UK's uh, the government's argument. Um, although it's notable to say, you know, people like Pfizer have said, well, you know, we, we've not really tested that. You know, that, at the moment, I suppose that's a theory. Um, they said we, we've not tested it. We've tested it in the two dose in in the recommended time frame. That that's what we have data for. That's what we're recommending. Um, so that is interesting. Uh, obviously, I. I, I've not seen data on this. I'm not. I'm not an expert in vaccination programs and, and how vaccines work. Um, so I think I suppose it's an open question at the moment: the effectiveness of, of the approach that the government has taken. And um, I should also say on on this potentially more deadly strain. You know, so it is. It's the UK variant that you know the, the what has been called the UK Kent variant um, that was first spotted in the southeast of the UK. And um, it's that that variant that the that the uh, UK government is is claiming is potentially more deadly. Thirty percent is the figure they've used. Um, although it's notable, Sky and, and a number of other outlets have, have done report uh, have done pieces on the um, other scientists suggesting that it's a bit preliminary. It's a bit early for the, for the government to be making those claims, and some scientists suggesting that the UK is sort of bigging up what is still quite early stage research, basically in effect to get the government uh, to get the public to comply with COVID restrictions more. So up in the air whether this is actually more deadly or not. Some early research seems to be suggesting it is, but the government may have jumped the gun a little bit in, in you know, announcing that in a in a, in a national briefing. Um, Callum, what I'm going to come on to you and your thoughts on the vaccination program and the and the approach the government's taken. Yeah, I think it's a bit much to consider whether people are going to actually trust the government on any of it, anything it says about COVID. Obviously, we can see. I mean, I live on one of the busiest roads in Lincoln. Um, I remember during the first lockdown, um, the streets were empty for several weeks. Uh, You'd get the occasional car maybe once every five or ten minutes. Um, During the second lockdown, it's really been no different to normal. Um, And, of course, um, that's not the fault of individuals necessarily. That's because basically the government has told employers that, you know, um, it's okay for you to take your employees into work and we're not going to help you to lock down in the same way as you were before. Um, But, I mean, on the speed of the rollout of of the vaccines, I think that's more of a testament to... Uh, the skills and professionalism of the civil service and also, of course, the healthcare sector as well. Um, they've obviously done a phenomenal job doing uh, the work of government and I, and I hope this approach does work out. Um, we weren't too sure about it last week, but it does seem that the medical consensus is kind of erring. I think Pfizer and also uh, the British Medical Association have said that um, you should be doing the, the more concentrated doses. So um, I think it's the first dose followed by the second dose 28 days later. Um, that would be the safer approach. And bear in mind as well that at the end of the day, the safest way to stop this virus from spreading while we're waiting for a vaccine, because for those of us who are young, either way, it's going to be a month's long wait. You know, We're looking at towards the end of the summer now, I think. Um, I think we have to just be... Um, if, we, if we're going to have to sort of exhibit that sort of patience, um, then we might as well just wait and, and do it properly and, and safely if we if we want to save lives. I mean, I, I was thinking the other day that if, if if it was if the vaccine was targeted in such a way as to uh, prevent spreading, 
then you wouldn't start with the most vulnerable, would you? Um, you wouldn't start with the elderly. You would start with, you know, healthcare workers, and then you'd go down to people working in uh, the emergency services, and then public transport, and then teachers, and, and so on and so forth, because these are the people who actually spread um, the disease. Ultimately, not through any fault of their own. That's just the way the virus works. Um, but actually, you know, even if you've got the vaccine even if you are immune yourself, you could still be carrying it. And that's why it's so important to protect the most vulnerable people first, as I understand it. So we might as well get that out of the way, um, exhibit some patience. And I think one of the reasons that the government is probably, or actually the main reason I suspect uh, the government is uh, rushing ahead or trying to rush ahead with this first um, vaccine is because they want the vast majority of the population to feel feel like they're immune and not going to spread it um, even if they are going to so that they will get back to work which is what the government wants us all to do um, despite being in the middle of a, of a deadly pandemic it's entirely reckless um, and history will eviscerate them but sadly that won't uh, save the lives of the thousands, tens of thousands of people who will die as a consequence. I, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm slightly more open to this strategy of the government than, than perhaps Ollie and Callum seem to be at the moment. Um, yeah, right up to the Guardian otherwise seems to suggest that the second dose of the vaccine um, se- seems to be primarily important for, for long-term immunity. Um, and the argument of the UK government is that you know much of the initial protection for a short-term period um, is front loaded in the in the first dose. It seems to be the argument. Um, obviously, like I said, I'm not I'm not an expert on vaccines. Um, I'm not a scientist, so I, I I can't vouch for the accuracy of that scientifically. Um, and there are some in the scientific community that that suggest that they're, they're saying basically we, we don't know what the impact of delay in the second dose will be. Um, so I I I can understand the the concerns, I suppose, um, but I I can also understand why. Th- there, there might be. I think you're probably right, Callum. I, I think probably some, to some degree, the decision to do it has been to a show that you know that there's higher levels of vaccinations, um, and and you know that the vaccines have reached more people. That looks good from a propaganda outlook, and and I'm sure psychologically it will make more people feel like they're they're protected than otherwise. So I'm I don't I don't doubt that that play, plays a part in what the government's thinking and, and strategizing. Um, but I do think that there, there is some logic in terms of actually saving lives, not necessarily saying it's correct. I've not seen the figures and I'm, I'm not a scientist, but you, there is an argument for the, that this approach may save more lives. Um, and it is an interesting point you bring up about, um, you know, we vaccinate the most vulnerable first and, and not those that are most likely to spread. But of course, some countries have taken another route and some countries have actually focused on frontline workers and vaccinating them first, um, and, you know, in order to get the economy up and going as well. Um, so I, I think we we're probably taking the better approach. I think it probably is more important to to protect the vulnerable first rather than reduce the spread. Um, but but other countries have taken a different route. Uh, Callum Roper, what what are your thoughts? So is the government being being too reckless um, with with the vac- vaccination program and the route it's taken, um, or or does it make sense what they're trying to do? Well, I I think it's a difficult point to be to be making really because i think the government rightly are trying to get the biggest spread possible but the question is over whether it is reckless and i don't know and and simply nobody knows until we get this done and this is the approach they've taken 
Um, I don't know whether we'll learn lessons internationally on, on how to spread out the uh, coronavirus vaccine on the back of this, certainly in some larger countries uh, where it's more difficult to get the uh, some of the other vaccines. So obviously we have the Oxford vaccine, which is relatively easy to administer, but some of these harder to administer vaccines, AstraZeneca and Moderna, where they have to be kept at extremely low temperatures. Um, so therefore, it would be very difficult to set up clinics clinics in some more remote areas of the world um but if this is using their limited scientific advice obviously this would have been run by sage albeit they don't tend to listen to some of the scientific advice but you would imagine they would have taken scientific advice on this because there would be no point in administering tens of millions of vaccines only for to be told that they were basically null and void because we didn't take the uh the correct amount of time between the two. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic on that front. But in terms of the rollout, I think that because we've had, well, every winter we have a vaccination program for the flu. So we do have some experience of combating um, viruses in, in, in a way using the vaccines previously. And we have had mass rollouts of the flu vaccine. So we have got some experience of it, nothing on this scale, obviously, but we do have some experience of how to vaccinate. In addition to that, we've never really faced a pandemic like this in, in decades, if not centuries, and we have the experience to do so. So I think it's a real credit to the experience and the hard work of our NHS staff, um, hard work of the scientists and obviously the people setting up the supply chains for such a huge vaccination program. So I think for once we can actually praise something that hasn't been torn out of the NHS, whereas we have done previously in terms of beds, in terms of um, life support, which is good to see. It's good to see that we've still got some backbone to the NHS despite the government's best efforts. And I think this vaccination program as it rolls out, obviously, we I think we've got the biggest numbers of people getting their first jab in the world, which is fantastic to see. But obviously, as I say, it's a cautiously optimistic. But the likes of us, we certainly will be waiting till at least September, I imagine, to get our first dose of the vaccination. And I'm more than happy to wait. I'm more than happy to wear a mask, socially distance, stay indoors as much as possible. If that means that people's lives are saved, if that means that we get the vaccination that's going to be effective. And that means that eventually we'll be seeing the, the decline of this, this horrible virus as soon as possible, but in that safe bracket. So we're, we're going to move on to our final story um, today. We're, we're going to come a little closer to home um, and talk about some local issues in Lincoln. Um, so last week we, we had a story on our, uh, our local MP, Carl McCartney, um, and he's, he's blocking of Labour students on Twitter for, for uh, challenging him um, on, on his vote against uh, free school meals in Parliament. Um, this week, he's been in, he's been in the news again. Um, I think it was a story in the Lincolnite, um, <clears throat> broke the story, um, around his, his, his mentioning of his role as a local magistrate, which I think he's, he's positioned he's held for about 25 years now, so a significant amount of time. Um, but but he's been told off in the past for, for mentioning this on political leaflets. It's apparently a role you're not you're not supposed to talk about on political leaflets or or use to you know as, as some sort of leverage for political gain. 
which I suppose you know if he if he's talking about it on a on a political leaflet, he's in in some way attempting to use that role to to give a better appearance for himself. I suppose it could be argued. Um, so he's been told off for, for doing this in the past, um, and it appears there's it, been evidence that he's he's done it again on a leaflet, um, and and he, he's he's had another telling off um, for doing this. Um, according to him, he doesn't he doesn't think he's anything wrong. He he says that um, you yeah you, you if he, if you do various sorts of roles, and I think he talks about public service and, and charitable work as well that he, he mentions quite regularly. He, he says it shouldn't really be treated as anything different to that, and and that. Um, you know, I think he suggested that the, the his telling off was politically motivated, and and that you know he's not really doing anything wrong, and he should be able to continue putting it on leaflets. Um, Callum, what I'm going to come to you first on on your initial thoughts to to uh, the latest uh, the latest saga with our local MP. Well, I have to say, initially uh, when I looked at it, I thought you know maybe it's not actually a big deal. At the end of the day he was a magistrate, um, is a magistrate, which I think actually is a little bit worrying. Um, <laughs> the, the, the bigger issue is that he is a magistrate, not that he's using the title um, to to uh, support his political career because he's a bastard. You know, he's, he has um, some incredibly problematic views about the uh, people that he's supposed to represent. Obviously, most recently, uh, we have uh, covered his strange hypocritical attitude to children, um, saying that he cares about them deeply and yet also wanting to put them at risk. Um, and also uh, through his votes in Parliament, that was, that's what it would suggest. Um, you know, he's had some very pro- um, awful views on LGBT people, equal marriage, those sorts of things in the past. So he's clearly not a very fair-minded individual. Uh, no one would really want him to sit in judgment over you. you wouldn't want him to sit in judgment over you, would you? That's um, so that's that's quite worrying. Um, so it, in a way, I'm surprised that he, uh, for all of those things, he, he isn't. Uh, he hasn't been persuaded to step down or, or been removed from um, for, from that position. Um, so in a way, like the the fact that you know uh, he hasn't been removed, you know. Um, why shouldn't he be allowed to call himself uh, a JP uh, on his leaflets? Because clearly the system's already broken enough. Um, however, nevertheless, you know that what's actually been you know, written by the people who are reprimanding him—they're not political agents. You can't call it a political move. These are technocrats. These are people who believe in in the law and and the integrity of the office that he holds as a as a magistrate, and you know in that role you are supposed to be politically neutral. You're supposed to be impartial um, and to make uh, fair judgments. And I suppose the justification, therefore, for reprimanding him is that if you're also a politician. You know, politicians are supposed to be, you know, the opposite of that. They're supposed to be partial. They're supposed to take decisions. They're supposed to have opinions. Um, it, it's in many ways the polar opposite of that. So now it's a strange quirk of the law that someone is allowed to hold both roles because, you know, if someone who you might be sitting in judgment in has seen you express an opinion about, you know, I don't know, hanging, for instance, you know, um, th- is that not going to undermine you, their, your confidence 
that you're going to be judged fairly. And perhaps more importantly, you know, your friends, your family, your community, um, are you going to be as confident that Carl McCartney is going to be fair-minded in his judgments when he's sitting as a magistrate? And then, as you extrapolate it further, if he's allowed to get away with it, what about other magistrates? So it uh, then sort of undermines the whole system in a way um, that, you know, that if someone like that who, you know, has such has a, such a partial attitude and is in many ways unsuitable probably to be a, a magistrate, uh, at least in my opinion, um, you know, that could undermine confidence in other magistrates sitting in judgment. So I think that's the that's the justification for reprimanding him. And if he's being told that by the civil service, I mean, you must understand this, surely. You know, as he said, he's been a magistrate for many, many years. He's been a politician for many, many years. He should know better. And if he's been if he's been told to take it off his leaflets, you know, he absolutely should because it's then therefore in the public interest. And it's just therefore another example of Carl McCartney not really caring very much about uh, the sorts of traditions and morals and values that, uh, as a conservative, uh, he's supposed to stand up for, as he uh, as they would say. Yes, um, and I should I should just clarify actually what he actually suggested was that the the complaint that resulted in this judgment um, was actually politically motivated. So he he said. Um, he, I mean, I don't. I'm not quite sure how he knows who who made the complaint. I don't. It's probably not appropriate that he does know that. But but anyway, I don't know what the processes behind that are. But I would have thought he shouldn't know who made the complaint. But he he suggested um, that the complaint came from a fellow magistrate. Um, and also bizarrely, he mentioned that they're a University of Lincoln lecturer. I'm not, not really sure that's relevant. But that but that's what he's been quoted as saying in the Lincolnite. And, and he suggested their complaint about this is politically motivated rather than. Um, the, the decision itself, although he clearly doesn't really like the decision that's been made and and, and do, doesn't really agree with it. Um, so it seems a bit odd that he knows who's made the complaint. I would have thought that that's not something he should know. But anyway, uh, Mr. Roper, what, what are your thoughts on on this uh, latest from, from RMP? Well, again, it shows um, Mr. McCartney's disregard for the system, the disregard for fairness, um, I think that using the the judiciary or a position within the judiciary to make political gains is is a is a no no. Um, I think Callum eloquent put it earlier, um, and and actually it does undermine our um, you know our our view of, of of the of the judiciary to be this long standing um, firm but fair system that judges people based on the merits of a case, not on the base of their politics or the base on the polit- political views of the magistrate. So I think to see Carl McCartney constantly abusing this position to make political gains, as he's done it in the past, is something that's extremely concerning. Um, it reminds me of the, of I don't know if any of you have seen the, the Peter Lou film, but the magistrates in there that they stand looking at the, the the masses assembled in St in St Peter's Field, um, and then they uh, they essentially tell the the soldiers to charge them. And it reminds me of that sort of attitude of you have these people looking over us, casting judgment over us because they are of the conservative, upstanding point of view. And I think that that's 
not right because actually the judiciary nowadays albeit it isn't fully representative of the society we live in but it certainly is more impartial at least if you take out some of the characters such as Carl McCartney so I think that ultimately what we've got to do is is say that as, as a Labour Party and as an opposition to him in the city is say that you can't do this because this is an abuse of your power this is an abuse of your position and ultimately as a magistrate you have a per, you have a, a responsibility to uphold the the integrity of that system the integrity of the judiciary so i think uh, he certainly should back down and either resign or stop using that as a, as as a position to make political gains with and and it I mean, I think I think you're quite right. But it looks like he's sort of be- not not quite clear. But it seems like he's begrudgingly accepted not to do this again because he his quotes in the Lincolnite uh, along the lines of, um, you know, the the guidance needs to be made clearer. Um, but he, but he doesn't want to have to have the argument again. Is is along the lines of what he's quoted in the Lincolnite, which admittedly is not massively clear. But that sounds to me like he might begrudgingly stop doing this now. I think. So, so maybe, hopefully, um, a bit of um, a bit of public pressure and another another telling off might result in him stop doing this. Maybe, um, but I suppose it's a good opportunity to 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 ask um, the rest of you what what you think outside of his um, blocking of, of people on Twitter and uh, his tellings off from official bodies. Uh, how has Carl McCartney been doing for the people of Lincoln? Um, during the COVID uh, crisis, has he has he been a stalwart of the local community, and has he has he provided um, uh, you know has he thought for the people of Lincoln and 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 made COVID a little bit more bearable for us all? Um, Ollie, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I haven't heard of anything uh, any cases. Obviously, I don't actually live in Lincoln at the moment, but um, anyone feel free to correct me. But I I I think he's just been almost like missing in action. Um, and I don't think he's necessarily been supporting his local communities. And again, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not for sure, um, for sure on that. But yeah, um, and back to just quickly back to those points that were very eloquently put by both the Callums. I'd just like to say that um, I think you know Karl McCartney fits right in with the Tories, where, where he thinks he's kind of almost above the law and. Um, he has to actually obey the law and, you know, he cries out like cancel culture or, or freedom of speech kind of concerns whenever he actually has to obey the law. Um, and I'd just like to um, kind of echo those concerns about the impartiality of the of the judiciary, something which is, some, is supposed to be politically neutral. And I really don't know why our constitution, our very lucid constitution allows um, to be able to do both. Um yeah, I don't know uh, if anyone else is sure about what Karl McCartney has been up to during lockdown. Um, please feel free to correct me on, on what I said earlier. Yeah, I, I think that is a good point, actually. Um, I think maybe if you are if you are seeking some form of political office, significant political office, then maybe you should have to give up your role as a magistrate. Maybe that that would be an appropriate rule to bring in. Um, Callum Roper, what are your thoughts? How how has Carl's conduct been uh, in in terms of policy and, and standing up for the people of Lincoln um, over, over the past year? Has has he has he been a boon to the people of Lincoln in these difficult times? Well, I I think we we discussed this about the blocking last week, but I think his record over the pandemic and indeed beforehand is is nothing but damning on his uh, on his time as MP for Lincoln. I think. 
voting against lockdowns and, and opposing some of the measures that are necessary to combating the virus are, are, are atrocious. He can't be doing this because it's putting his own constituents in danger. And we only have to cast our mind back a few months to when Lincoln was one of the highest areas for COVID cases. And our MP was not willing to entertain the need for a lockdown. And he still doesn't, really. He still opposes it in his heart of hearts. Um, and then we only have to look at his record for looking at school meals, free school meals over the holiday period and during lockdown for our local children. There is a number of areas in Lincoln that are extremely deprived in the top areas of the country when it comes to deprivation. And he continues to ignore their needs because it doesn't align with his political views. And I think that as the MP for Lincoln, regardless of what party you're from, feeding or at least voting for feeding local children should be high up on your priorities when that comes forward. But he's, he's, he's shied away from that. You only have to look at his expenses previously. Is that really value for money for the representation that he provides for the city? I'd argue not so. I think that his views on uh, a number of issues around equality, that again is questionable for what is described. We describe ourselves as a university city, which is coming to be, well, coming to be more diverse and more rich in culture. And yet this MP stands in the complete opposite stance to that. So I think that he doesn't really, even if you take out of question the, this issue around the magistrate, does he really provide a, a good image for Lincoln? Does he represent Lincoln? That's, that's a question that I can only answer to say no. And uh, Callum, what what are your thoughts on uh, on Carl's um, performance? I suppose I suppose since taking up the mantle of MP um, again, in, I was going to say last December, but we're in twenty twenty one now, aren't we? Um, how, how has he performed over the last year and a bit, the last fourteen months? I can't really give a more comprehensive account than what we've already seen from Callum. I think the the big things to remember is that he has consistently voted against. Um, having lockdowns when the medical profession was telling us that we absolutely needed them. And the other thing, he has voted to starve children. Um, those are his two biggest crimes. Um, he has many others, as uh, Callum Roper has already listed. But those are the two things, I think, which stick in my mind and I think should stick in the minds of the people who voted him into office and hopefully will vote him out, this despicable man, out of office uh, at the earliest opportunity. Well, uh, what what better note to, than to call an end to our podcast. Um, so thank you very much, everyone, for joining us today. Um, you've been joined by me, your host, Bradley Usopp. We've also been joined by Callum Roper. Thank you all for listening, everyone. Have a safe week and we will see you again very shortly. We've also been joined by Ollie. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, stay safe and remember that our fish are now happier. <laughs> yeah, although the, all fishermen are not, though, apparently. Um, There's it, been, been delays and all sorts of issues for them for Brexit as well. So fish might be, but fishermen are not. Um, and we've also been joined by Callum Watt. Stay safe, all. Um, whether you are fish or human, I wish you the best. Thank, thanks everyone and we'll see you again next time